Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the author's books and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for over 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by uh, Dr. Richard Buzzichelli. He is our lecturer in theology for Catholic Studies Academy. And today our topic is going to be the Jewish Festival of Shavuot and the Christian Feast of Pentecost. And we're going to look with Dr. Buzzichelli here on the relationship between the two. We want to invite you to, to come on over to Catholic Studies Academy. Uh, we have a lot of material there uh, for you that are both that's both free, but what we also offer are courses in theology and philosophy. Dr. Buzzichelli, being our theologian, teaches many of those, including Introduction to Sacred Scripture, Moral Theology, and the course that he has just launched, which is the Ten Commandments a scriptural, theological, and moral study. And so he looks at the Ten Commandments from all three aspects in theology. Um, but today our topic is going to be Shavuot and Pentecost. So Dr. Bruce Kelly, uh, to get us started, maybe you can uh, explain to us what this, uh, what the Jewish feast of uh, Shavuot um, is and kind of where do we find it in the Old Testament? Right. So we see it in Leviticus 21. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so God is telling the people Israel, first of all, to celebrate the Passover, but then it doesn't stop with the Passover, right? The Passover actually begins a festal period, but it's, it's an interesting festal period, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's a period kind of like our Advent, right? Okay. Maybe not you know, quite as severe a time of penance as you would um, associate with Lent. Mm-hmm. But uh, but nonetheless, right, at a time of preparation, a time of atonement, right, mm-hmm. and anticipation. And it leads up to another feast. Now, one of the interesting things, right, so a true penitential season, right, would really be characterized by a 40-day span. But this actually gives us a 50-day span. A 50 is the number of Jubilee, right? This is the 50 is the is the number which represents the absolution from sin, right? The uh, the dismissal of debt, the restoration of inheritance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when all the mountains are laid low and all the valleys raised, right? Right. Uh, all the tears wiped away, that kind of thing. That's that's the uh, that's the jubilee. So this period begins. Now there is some debate within Judaism about this, but the customary thing is to see it as beginning the on the second day of Passover. Mm-hmm. And then for seven full weeks, which of course is 49 days, right? right. So it's 50 days after Passover. And it's, um, and that's where we get the term Pentecost. Right. That's a, right. that, that is actually a word that, that among um, Greek-speaking Jews, even at the time of Christ, was being used. That word appears in Acts of the Apostles, right? A seven is the number of fulfillment, Right. Mm-hmm. So if you mul- so you're multiplying seven times itself to get 49, but because of when you've begun, you now have a 50-day period. Right. And that's the jubilee. Right. So you see all kinds of symbolism numerologically here. What is this feast about? Well, to understand that, we need to really understand what the feast of Passover was about. Right. And most of us, I think, have some idea of what mm-hmm. that was. We see the feast of Passover as a commemoration of the flight from Egypt, right? Right. When the Jews were led out of Egypt across the Dead Sea, out of bondage, out of slavery, right? 
out of a world in which they were condemned to be surrounded by idolatrous cults and instead were liberated to worship God in the way that God wanted to be worshipped, right? Mm -hmm. To worship the one true God in the right way, to keep his covenant, to know him, and uh, to be holy as God wants them to be holy, right? So that's what the Passover is about. However, when the Jews flee Egypt and they get to the other side of the Red uh, of the Red Sea, where do they find themselves? Lost in the desert. Right. They're in the desert. <laughs> and they're in the desert for 40 years, right? The problem with this being in the desert is that they haven't quite arrived at the place they're supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Well, symbolically, right, even before they reach the promised land, in fact, quite a long time before they reach the promised land, there's an event which occurs which teaches them, if they're paying attention, what the promised land actually symbolizes, mm-hmm. right? And that event is the giving of the Torah, right? When Moses goes up Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. So one of the understandings of this Jewish feast of Shavuot has to do with the idea of gift. And this is, uh, you know, kind of how we can begin to see the connection between Pentecost as we see the Holy Spirit as a gift. So how do we understand this this giving of the Torah, the law, as a gift? I mean, that you know, many times when we think of, you know, gifts from God, you know, the last, or even gifts from people, the last thing we think of are rules or, yeah. you know, the laws. So how do we, how do we understand this? Well, I think, first of all, you need to understand that, I mean, as far as ancient peoples go, right, the Jewish people were a highly moral group of people, right? I mean, they really, they were really conscious of the idea that um, happiness belongs to the good, right? right. That they, they, they won't be happy, uh, they have no real treasure if they if they don't have moral goodness, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean that does make them, you know, quite a remarkable um, group in the ancient world, right? Right. That they see their happiness as as dependent upon moral goodness. But the problem is, of course, how do we know what's morally good? You can look. They're they're deeply aware of the variety of cultures that surround them, right? Mm-hmm. And in each of those cultures, there seems to be wide-ranging opinions <laughs> about what is good, right? Yeah, to say it mildly, right? <laughs> right. So, like, some people are performing infant sacrifice, right? Uh, some people are, you know, marrying their, um, you know, their, like, their father's wives. And, I mean, it's it's bizarre. I mean, it's really, it's not it's not a pretty picture, right, the ancient right. world. And so what, what, what you've got in the gift of... In the gift of the Torah, encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, right, is God giving them the thing that they need most of all mm-hmm. to be fulfilled, to be happy, right? Which is to know what God has designed them to be, right? To know, I mean, they want to be good, but God knows what's good because God yeah. made them, right? Yeah. Yeah, and to have a clear explanation, or at least some some clear guidance from God. Uh, on, about what is pleasing, yeah. what's pleasing to him, right? Yeah, that is a gift. That is a true gift. And a gift, again, uh, like you said there, a gift that is ordered towards the good, you know, and, and to, even for us as, as Christians, we don't always have that view of uh, the rules or the uh, um, just the gift that the Ten Commandments are. 
in God giving us a clear direction. I mean, it's, you know, the way that I kind of see it, it's, it's the, the difference between, you know, if somebody asks you, okay, hey, how do I get to Nashville? It's one thing, you know, for somebody to say, oh, it's over that way and kind of generally points in a direction. As yeah, opposed- just kind of go... Yeah, kind of go east. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I don't know exactly how far. I just kind of head that way, as as opposed to somebody pulling out a map and saying, "Follow this road, go to this place. You will find, you know, you'll find Nashville or something like that." You know, like when you get to this interchange, don't take the don't take the fifty nine A. Take fifty nine B. Okay, because if you take fifty nine A, you're gonna go in the wrong place. I mean, like this is um that that's the that's the thing, right? Yeah, clear so, direction. Clear direction is is truly a gift, and so for that clear direction to come from God, it really is a a, a gift, and it's one that are in this uh, feast, they uh, they celebrate this gift uh, of the Torah. Right. So now, okay. So this is great. Notice that the feast is celebrating God's action, mm. the giving of the Torah. The feast is not addressing the question of reception, right? So yeah, interesting. The, this this is actually a really interesting dimension of this whole thing. The reason that you and I sometimes sometimes feel as if the commandments are an imposition isn't because there's anything wrong with the with the uh, direction that God's giving us, right? It's right. that there's something wrong with us. Yeah. It's because of the fall, because of original sin, that we find ourselves resistant to God's command. If we had um, never fallen, if we'd never sinned, we, we might not need to see the explicit um, revelation of the Ten Commandments because already being completely righteous, we would already know and assent to what it is that God was directing us to do, right? We would be the people that God wanted us to be. But because of the fall, we need the clarity. Because of the fall, our intellects have been darkened and our wills have been perverted. And so we tend to be resistant to the very thing we need in order to really be happy and fulfilled to be good human beings, right? So the question of of reception is a separate issue over and above, right, the question of God's giving. God has done his part. He's given it. Mm-hmm. Now the question is our reception. So the Jewish people recognize, right, that the process of reception is a lifelong project. Mm. And that even at a cultural level, right, it takes a long time for the Jewish people as a cult to really be purified. Well, we can take this to heart, right, and we can see a parallel in our own lives. Catholics are different from some Christians, right, in that some Christians have the view that that once you become a Christian, right, everything's been accomplished. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Catholicism, there's this view that there has to be an ongoing pilgrimage toward ever-deepening sanctification. Mm-hmm. And this is parallel, really, to this idea in Judaism that God has given the Torah, but now we need to receive it, right? right. And that, that reception is a process. So going to the New Testament, we see this. We see the event of Pentecost. One of the things that's really interesting about it is that the movement in Acts of the Apostles up mm-hmm. to the moment of Pentecost illustrates a time of preparation. And now remember, this is parallel to this period, right? This counting of the Omer in uh, Judaism, right? Right. From the Passover to Shavuot. So they're in the upper room and they're waiting. They're there. It's an anticipation for God to do what He's going to do. You see this illustrated in their actions because remember that Judas had taken matters into his own hands, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like the Jews and the golden calf 
in, in, in a sort of parallel that way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Judas, Judas had taken matters into his own hands, and it ended in disaster, including his own suicide mm-hmm. and abandonment of his responsibilities in the church that God, that Jesus was establishing. So what did they do? They recognized during this time that Christ's decision can't be thwarted by human resistance, mm. that we can't veto Christ's choice. And so we should keep that in mind today, by the way, right? <laughs> um, we can't veto Christ's directive. And so they seek to restore what it is that Judas had damaged by his own inaction. Mm. They do it by selecting Matthias, but how do they do that? They draw lots, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a way of kind of giving God the space to reveal to us his own choice Mm -hmm. for the solution of this problem. It's a posture of what? Reception, receptivity to God's will. And then the Holy Spirit, of his own accord, descends upon them. Mm -hmm. This action really fulfills something that we find promised in the Old Testament, right? Mm -hmm. We see references to it all over the place in the Old Testament in more or less explicit terms. So think of the image in Ezekiel where he says, I will turn your hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So the hearts of stone is, is an image of the sinful heart. Yeah. The heart of flesh is the heart pliable to God's touch, mm. right? The God, yeah. the heart that's vulnerable to God. Yeah, it also reminds me of uh, uh, St. Augustine. He's got a great line referring to the Ten Commandments, uh, very similar yeah. to this right here where he says, you know, God wrote on the tablets what man ceased to read on his heart. That's you know, so right. You yeah. have that, that, that kind of uh, uh, dichotomy or that kind of juxtaposition between the stone and the flesh, which I think, you know, bringing these two, uh, uh, this Jewish Feast of Shabbat and Pentecost, you know, together, uh, we can kind of see this, see the same kind of, kind of play going on between the stone and the flesh. That's right. So if we think about the, 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 the if we think about the Pentecost, right, mm-hmm. as being the penetration of God's own sanctity mm-hmm. into the human heart, the writing of the commandments on the heart, and thus the transformation of the stony heart of man into the fleshly heart, vulnerable to God and obedient to him, right? With a willing obedience. Yeah. In this way, making us over into the image of Christ, right? Um, then we really, I think, understand the point of Pentecost right? and how it relates how it is, in fact, the Christian fulfillment of the um, of the feast of Shavuot. Well, even in the um, when you were explaining Shavuot, it's the celebration of the first fruits, but not necessarily yeah. the only fruit. It's kind right. of that that first thing. So, I mean, like taking this image with the with you know Pentecost, it is yeah. that 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 preeminent preeminent gift, um, mm-hmm. but that but that gift becomes multiplied in our reception and in our reception and in our own lives it becomes kind of that gift multiplied in that way to where it's a, I mean, it's a real uh, celebration of uh, the fruits the fruits that god has given us and the image of the tongues of fire of course is really, really interesting too right because there you see a reference to the exodus event yeah um and where in particular moses first experiences the theophany at the burning bush, mm-hmm. right, where God makes himself present in the burning bush, right? The bush 
burns with the fire of God's love, but is not consumed by it. Mm -hmm. What does this tell us, right? This tells us that the fire of God's love, which we can also see as the fire of God's wrath and the fire of God's judgment, right? Mm -hmm. They're really all the same thing. But if there's nothing to burn away, if there's no impurity there, nothing is harmed. Right. It burns away that which is impure, that which is sinful, right? Until what's left is the pure thing that God uh, wishes to draw into his presence. Mm -hmm. So here, right, just like the burning bush, the apostles in the upper room have assumed a rapture of receptivity to God's will. There's nothing left there to be purged away, right? Mm -hmm. So the flame comes to a light upon them. And like the burning bush, it does them no harm. Like the fire in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Mm -hmm. we, they, they walk around in its midst and not a hair on their head yeah. is singed. Now is, there, now, is there a correlation between the church and this Jewish feast of Shavuot? Uh, because, I mean, Pentecost, we always talk about it as the birth of the church. Uh, and how it's really uh, that the from this Pentecost event, the mission given to the apostles and the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel uh, really comes alive in uh -huh. Pentecost when Peter goes out and, and preaches. So is there any correlation that we can draw from this uh, from this f Jewish feast to to our understanding of the church? Well, yeah, I think so. So um, but it's a subtle point. Right. So mm -hmm. the first thing I want to say is. Um, about the idea that the church is born at Pentecost yeah, is to say, well, I mean, that's kind of one image about yeah, the yeah, church yeah. Oh, yeah. being constituted. And we shouldn't make too much out of it because there are many other passages that we find in the New Testament which we could point to the event in which the church is constituted, right? Mm -hmm. um, but this is a common way of talking about Pentecost. Mm -hmm. And it's important as a way of thinking about Pentecost, not because it defines dogmatically the moment at which the church came into being right, right, right. because it tells us something important about what the church is. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. So the church is essentially the solution to the problem of the fall mm -hmm. in, in this, in this respect. Okay. If the fall is characterized by division in the human organism, if you think about humanity organismically, not mm -hmm. simply as a collection of individual instantiations, right? Okay but instead as a communion. This communion is broken in sin, mm -hmm. right? The man and the woman turn away from one another and from God and from their proper place in the created order, right? And even from themselves. They put on loincloths. They hide from God and one another. You see? They, they disappear among the trees in the garden. No longer do they stand out in creation as something uh, above it, Mm -hmm. Right. But they fall beneath it. And now they succumb to the power and authority of death. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is really a terrible, terrible tragedy in the fall. We see also in the story of the Tower of Babel, which we can also regard as another um, account of the fall. Right. Mm -hmm. That people who had once spoken one language about the same thing, they used the same words to talk about the same thing. Right. Yeah. Namely. And they were headed east where God draws near to man, but then they decide to stop and to take their destiny into their own hands. Rather than using stones to build a tower, a temple, they forge bricks by their own hands, mm. you see, and they build it out of this. 
They take their destiny into their own hands. And in that move, while they're all in agreement about doing that, they're all in agreement about turning what? Away from God and inward to themselves. The result is radical confusion, radical alienation. Okay, Pentecost reverses that process. Now, all of a sudden, the confusion of languages is transcended, mm -hmm. and everyone hears and understands. And they understand what? They're all talking about the same thing, no longer themselves, but the but the 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 uh, the marvels of God. Those two stories, I think, both Pentecost and you know the Tower of Babel. That's you know very important for us as Christians today to point to a time where we decided to make ourselves God and look at what right. happened. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it led to death, destruction, confusion, uh, the scattering of people. I mean, right. we, and it does. Every single time we try it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, a, you know, that's the story of the Old Testament, the story of, of our infidelity and God's fidelity. And, and it comes to this, this high point, I think, at Pentecost, where, like you said, all of those things that happened at the Tower of Babel are reversed. Now, maybe one thing you could talk a little bit about, maybe what is the relationship between the gift of the law being given, the gift of the Torah and the celebration of it in Shabbat? And uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is there is there a correlation between yeah. the law and the Torah and the Holy Spirit? Right. So I think so. And I, I'm, we're kind of getting to that point, right? Because if we think about the church as restoring harmony to humanity, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm not, of course, talking about the church in its institutional structure with all of its woes and human sin, right? Right. But the church as it is in its holiness— in its ideal as given by God in its purity, right? Mm -hmm. The heavenly form of the church. This is in fact, right, the restoration of the restoration of harmony, the, the, the overcoming of alienation. Mm -hmm. If we look at the reception of uh, the Torah, or I should say the giving of the Torah, right, mm -hmm. to Israel, they see the giving of the Torah as essentially constituting them as a people, right? Right. So now it gives them what? The common rule of life, the common way, the, right, the way of the Torah. This is the thing that defines them as a people. Elaborating upon the Ten Commandments, they, um, they discover the ritual laws by which they live out their cultic responsibility toward God. All the feasts and customs that they come to keep are, in their view, built upon the Ten Commandments, right? And that's the way they are presented in... Um, in the Pentateuch. There's a similar sort of function here, right, between what's happening in the giving of the Torah in the Old Testament and the descent of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. That's something essential about who these people are is coming to light. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the real point of departure is that we have in the giving of the Torah sort of a nascent event. Mm -hmm in that it constitutes the people Israel as a nation. But we don't yet have the universality of the of the solution, right? right? So we can say, well, we have a solution to the problem for this particular people, right? Or at least we're a long way to a solution. Right. We now know the will of God, and we, uh, and we can follow it because we have clear rules. We could do the things that please God, right? Mm -hmm. Other nations don't have it. Mm -hmm. At Pentecost, an element of prophecy that we find that runs throughout the whole of the Old Testament is sort of 
brought to fulfillment, which is what? Israel will be a light to the nations. And now now other nations, right? Yeah. Are are given a share in that in that revelation. Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit, right, crosses the boundary of language, which is the boundary really that sort of um, defines these different cultures, if you think about it. It's symbolically, right, the right. language is the, is the dividing line. And we see that, again, referring back to the story of Babel. They spoke the same language about the same things, but then they didn't at the end. So now we have the Holy Spirit reaching into this confusion and repairing it, right? Mm-hmm. So people are speaking lots of different languages, but each one hears in that language the one thing about which they ought to be speaking, right? Yeah. Which is the marvels of God. Yeah, I always thought that was an interesting point about the uh, the, the story of Pente- Pentecost where, where Peter is preaching, and it's not that they all understand the language that Peter was preaching, but that they all understood Peter in their own language. Uh, yeah. Um, that, they're, right. they're, they're, that the universality of the Pentecost event is not necessarily the language, but the message that is being conveyed in every language, which I think, uh, you know, points to that universality of, uh, of the church and the message that the church brings to the world, that the unity is not necessarily, and then, and then again, I think this might be, you know, kind of where it, it begins to diverge, you know, from Judaism is that it, it is not the centered upon a common language, but that it is meant for all languages uh, and like you said, that's uh, uh, symbolic of, you know, all peoples, uh, of bringing it to, to the entire world. Right. And, and that's actually one of the important things, right, about the restoration of the, um, the number of apostles, mm. right, right before the Pentecost event. The number 12 yeah. is the number of universality, right? Mm-hmm. The number of Catholicity. Yeah, and 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 that that is an interesting point. I never really thought about that before. That it is that aspect is restored before Pentecost, not necessarily after. Um, but it yeah. was something that the apostles did immediately, which which I think is kind of interesting because I mean, like uh, you know, when you think about like okay, you used to be twelve guys, now you're down to eleven, and. Even though you're you're not really sure what you're supposed to do yet, because it said you know they were they they knew that they were supposed to be waiting, so they're up there waiting. They're like, yeah, we should definitely bring in another person to wait with us. You know, like they didn't yeah. say, well, let's let's find out our mission first, and then we'll put out a job description. You know, it wasn't anything like well, that. Well, okay, so you know? this, actually, this is, yeah, so this is interesting. This is actually really interesting, and I, I where I, I I risk opening another can of worms here <laughs> that would get us totally off of our top. That's all right. But but maybe it maybe it points in the direction of a podcast we ought to have in the future. Many people, you know, they'll, they'll cry out for the ordination of women. Yeah. And one of the argument, one of the things that people will say, right, is look, if Christ wanted there to be um, women's ordination, he would have chosen a, a female among the twelve. And some people reject this idea, right? Mm-hmm. That argument. But it's interesting to note that the apostles don't reject that argument. In fact, that seems to be exactly their motive in choosing Matthias. If Christ wanted there to be any number other than 12, right, Yeah. for the apostles, he would have chosen more or less than 12. He chose 12 gods, so he must want 12. Let's replace, let's replace Judas, right? And then they pick Matthias. Now, of course, that leaves, that leaves aside the question of what begins to happen um, after the after Pentecost, and they settle down. At least at this particular point, yeah, 
right? At least at this particular point, they're presuming that they're presuming that Christ kind of did what he meant to do. Yeah. Right. That his choice was deliberate in the construction of the apostolic circle. Yeah. They may not have known everything to do, but they knew one thing that they had to do, namely replace Judas. Uh, right. And so that's what they did. You know, yeah. you know, while they hadn't received the Holy Spirit in that way, I, I think it does point to a living in the Holy Spirit in that the Holy Spirit is there to to convict us uh, of, uh -huh. of, of what to do and a lot of times when to do it, not to give us the all of everything all at once. You know what I mean? Like the apostles didn't, you know, they didn't get a laundry list of things to do, but they, they, they knew the things that they had to do and they did them. Um, yeah. and, and I think this goes to, you know, what we were talking about before with predisposition or that disposition of being open, of, of being, uh, receptive to what God is giving us. What, what is the Holy Spirit? Where's the Holy Spirit guiding us now that there is that, that receptivity, but also the other thing is that because sometimes when people talk about the Holy Spirit, it's kind of like tornadic winds, like, well, the Holy Spirit can blow wherever she wants to. You know, they'll use some sometimes language like that. Uh, no, no, no. And, th and I think this is where, where you know, this understanding of, the, of Pentecost with Shavuot is, is important is because the Holy Spirit has a connection between the law and the Torah. And yeah. what the, the, the main purpose of the Torah and the law to, is to do is to bring order to disorder to bring order to a people that had wandered off into a desert. Yes, the Holy Spirit uh, is this new, uh, like you were saying, drawing on Ezekiel, bringing that new heart of flesh in. But it does uh -huh. not do it in a chaotic way. Um, but it does it in a way that is built upon the order of the Torah, the order of the, the Ten Commandments, uh, and goes from there. Illustrative of this point, right, is a detail in the um, story of Pentecost, right, that we might otherwise overlook. So on the one hand, as the event begins, you see that, um, that the Holy Spirit is first felt in the form of uh, this mighty gush of wind, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a Ruah Elohim, uh, the Spirit of God, right? The, this mighty wind, like in the story of creation, mm -hmm. that hovers over the waters. But at the end of the story, it's still the case that in spite of all the people out there experiencing this miracle of being able to understand and across the barrier of language, there are many among them who dismiss it. Mm. Clearly, those people don't hear what's being said. They don't understand it, right? They can't understand the words coming out of Peter's mouth. Yeah. Because why? Well, because they themselves refuse to uh, be receptive to what it is that God is doing. They don't approach the mystery, right, with the appropriate disposition. Yeah. And therefore, they're not, they're not helped by it. God's interaction with human persons is that, you know, he doesn't force his grace upon us. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. He doesn't force anything on us. Offers everything that we need, not in a way that through our own power we can accomplish salvation, but that we can be receptive in a, in a holy manner. But it's this offering that still mm -hmm. needs to be uh, received. He doesn't force his grace upon us. So, I mean, like those people, they may, they may have heard, they may have seen the signs, they may have, you know, done all of that. And yet, you know, and we see this in the stories of Christ all over the, the, the Gospels, 
of many people just walking away. You know, they heard and they walked away in a way that God has given us, you know, that that power nullify his grace in our life. I mean, that's a quite quite a scary, scary thing that that God has done for us. You know, when we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I think this is why I, I think we should retain that gift of fear of the Lord. Uh, uh, yeah. To not not translate it to wonder and awe, but to leave it there as as fear of the Lord. Not that God is some angry guy waiting to to punish us, but that we should take Him at His word. He will do what He actually says and what He has revealed to us. Uh-huh. That should be fearful. Yeah, and, for... uh, there's, and there's more, right? There's more, right? We can't take the gift. Mm, yeah. Right. It's a gift. You can't take it. So in the, in the story of the garden, right, you see this very image mm-hmm. where after the fall, God is sort of lamenting the uh, the turn that mm-hmm. man and the woman have taken in the garden. And he says, lest they stretch out their hands, right, lest they stretch forth their hands yeah. and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, right? So they, 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 they can't take it. Yeah. But now their posture is no longer a posture of receptivity. It's a posture of appropriation, mm. attainment, acquisition. And what and what's the name of their firstborn son? Cain. Appropriation. Attainment. Ah, interesting. Right? Interesting. So the the, the uh, so that you see how I mean it's really actually it's it's really interesting stuff, you know. Yeah. And it it just goes to show. So the the Holy Spirit they when does the Holy Spirit finally descend? descends when they have settled into uh, this posture of receptivity mm-hmm. and that that's that's what this um, that's what this period of time between Passover and Shabbat is about achieving well and I think for our listeners out there you know the you know we're in the time where we're celebrating Pentecost this is the disposition we should have as Catholics is one of, of receptivity. And it's one that calls us uh, to live a life that is different, a life that is not disordered, but a life that is ordered with the foundation of the Torah, but also one that is, that is genuinely alive. And like uh, Dr. Buzakelli drew on that, the, the scripture passage from Ezekiel, I will turn your your hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And so, Dr. Bruce Kelly, I, I think you've given us a lot to think about here. I hope that our listeners can can draw a lot from this. And one thing I do want to point out is that uh, Dr. Bruce Kelly also has a blog and uh, I, th- I think some YouTube videos also on uh, some other aspects of Pentecost and some other aspects of the Holy Spirit that's on the uh, uh, Catholic Studies Academy website. I want to point our listeners to go over there and take a look at those. Because the more that we can understand the more that we can go into these mysteries, the more that we can actually participate with God in the grace that he's given us. Again, like we had just said, you know, God doesn't force his grace on us, but he gives everything to us and he waits for us. And so for us to have that disposition of receptivity and to have the the, the intellectual capability of understanding what it is that is before us, we can receive it with a more full heart and with the the heart that the Holy Spirit has transformed. In this time of Pentecost, ask God to continue to bless his church. Ask the Holy Spirit to come upon all those members of the church so that we can live holy lives uh, and uh, in a way, you know, reverse all the confusion and all the destruction that comes from when people turn away from God. So until next time, God bless.